This is Rugby Ridge, and we're on episode 181 of the Green and Gold Rugby Podcast. Back for another week of rugby chat, and another on our installments of Rugby World Cup Legends, which we'll get to in a little while. We had to pause last week. The Waratahs decided to uh, dignify us with their presence on the show. They're obviously looking to boost some numbers, so they gave us one of their players. Finally, after two years of seeking their assistance, they finally deemed us worthy of their presence. It was great to have Cliffy Palu on the show. Um, unfortunately, the Tars, we will not see them again this season, nor the Brumbies, but we'll get into detail about that a little later. What we do want to talk about is Rugby World Cups, and again, we're supported by Queensland Rugby Union, a state that has been supportive of Green and Gold Rugby and the podcast since its inception. So uh, great to have Queensland Rugby supporting us again and their Reds Long Lunch, which is a fabulous event. A couple of days before their Springbok test up here in Brisbane. They've obviously got Graham Henry and Bob Dwyer, two uh, great analysts of the game. They'll go head-to-head. Hosted by Nick McArdle of Fox Sports Rugby fame. Uh, Other guest speakers will be David Campisi, uh, Ben Tune. And, of course, uh, Bobby Skinstad from the uh, Springboks. A late addition to the long lunch has been confirmation of Wallaby coach Michael Chica. So he'll be there as well, which will be fantastic to hear. All the latest on the Wallaby squad uh, from Chica. Uh, so there you go. Check to uh, head to redsrugby.com.au or, of course, greenandgoldrugby.com. Uh, with all the links you need for the information to join the long lunch, which should be a great event. Now, on to this week's show. And we have a Reds legend, coincidentally. Fantastic. Uh, One of our longest-serving players. But he is also one of only five Wallabies to have won the Rugby World Cup twice. One of them, John Eels, we had on last week. Others being Jason Little, Tim Horan, and Phil Kearns. And, of course, this man... Mr. Dan Crowley. Krause, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Dan, I want to, the whole premise behind these podcasts is focusing on Rugby World Cups, but I want to touch on your Wallaby debut, which was two years prior to the 1991 World Cup against the British and Irish Lions. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, was it this selection for the Wallabies that caused you to have to step away from your life as an undercover, undercover cop? Oh, no, I actually, would you believe, uh, kept doing because I was halfway through a project or uh, an operation at the time. So I actually had another six months after my first uh, debut uh, that I had to finish because we put a lot of time, effort and uh, and resources into it. So I had to see that out before I actually finished. That's remarkable. Fantastic. Now, now that series was pretty famous for being tough and and, uh, particularly those last two tests after we beat them, had a big win over them in the first test. So who did you find tougher then? Some of those former, uh, uh, I guess, criminals you had to infiltrate on the coast there or that Lions pack? Oh, I think I think they both had their difficulties and, and uh, different things you had to look out for, you know. But for me, playing uh, my first test, at the time, the British Lions, I suppose, they weren't as big and as known um, globally at that time when we first started. They're not like now where, yeah. where it's really 
um, knowing what they were about. So they were a bit of an unknown quantity, but in uh, and, and a tough opposition. So after getting that first win, which was fantastic, to come out in the second and third, we knew it was going to be tough. And unfortunately, you know, by just the one try at the end, we were so close to winning a, uh, that, that first uh, series, but unfortunately didn't. Yeah. Now, that was your, you know, you played all three tests there, but according to my records, you didn't get another test cap until that 1991 World Cup, which we'll talk more details about. Can you remind me and the listeners, I assume you were there or thereabouts, were you on the bench a lot? That was back in the days when, you know, replacements didn't get the easy cap at the end of a test that they do seem to these days? Oh, that's for sure. You had to have basically a broken leg or a leg missing before the uh, a doctor had to actually vouch that you were too injured to be able to play on. So that was... It was one of those things the guys never came off the field if they, they didn't have to because they didn't want to relinquish their position. So I, I was on the bench for a number of games through uh, through 90. So unfortunately, as I always joke and have a go at Campo, he was the one who passed that ball for, back to Marto to lose the third test in the series against against the British Lions. But the next game, the front row got all got dropped. So I don't know how that actually worked. But anyway, it happened. So, But uh, it's one of those things I think it's... It's very much a character-building thing, and, and one of those things I've always said is the fact it's not a guy who's doing well or who's in, in the team or the guy. It's a guy who gets dropped or has the, the upsets how they come back from it. So it was a matter of you know taking it on the chin, learning to try and be better and, and uh, suck it up, be with the boys, do the best you possibly could in the hope that you're going to get a recall. Yeah, okay, well, that's fascinating. Well, let's get into that a bit detail. And we look at that 1991 season, and we've had a few of the guys from that series on the show, and one of the things we've talked about is that continuity of that team. And, and I think it was Jeff Miller might have played the first test, but then Porto came in. And we're just talking that domestic series before you went over to the World Cup, and Porto came in, and then um, Tim Gavin might have got injured before that last test versus New Zealand. But other than that, it was a core team which was was great for the team. But what was it like for you at that time in terms of um, as a backup player? I mean, I guess it was all that you were used to from a from a test perspective. You just had to keep turning up and training and, and, and giving your all in the hope that your chance would come. Well, it was a little bit different back then because we were only getting together, I suppose, three days before of a course, test yep. for, for home tests. Yep. So you weren't in, uh, around each other as much. But as I said, it was one of those things you basically grinned there, did the best you could. You know, from our perspective, we uh, we all believed we had a, a a role to play. Obviously, you know, you were always and if if you weren't dirty, you know, there'd be something wrong with you. So yep. all of us, you know, were the ones who wanted to be in the team. Again, it's a little bit different now than it was back then. Now, back then, it was you win a test match and then you know Bob Dwyer would come into the to the uh, the dressing room afterwards and say, right, same you know the same team selected for next week. So there wasn't oh, okay. any sort of analysis done or any any sort of post. Game reviews done. It was keep the team together if they're winning and and keep marching forward. And as per usual, if the, the losses start to occur, then the finger starts to get pointed. Okay, well let's look at that Rugby World Cup then. And, and um, again, it was a fairly consistent squad. So that that A team, if I can call it that, played most of those games. Was there any talk about what role the broader squad would play? Obviously, I think you played, and that would be your next game for Australia. That that second game on tour versus. Western Samoa there. Was there talk about how the squad would be used um, in that World Cup tournament at all? No, again, it was back in in, uh, in 91, and again, the game has matured yep. so much since then. Uh, it's, it, it was a case of whereby they weren't as 
uh, I suppose, professional in in their outlook. So it was keep the team together and, and keep playing the team. And unless there was an injury, basically the, the guys stayed in the team. And and so you, you basically marched along with that team. And and again, you didn't really, um, as a reserve, have an opportunity to be able to showcase yourself mm. because you, you weren't getting on the field because unless there was someone injured. Yeah, okay. Well, let's look at that Samoa game. What are your recollections of that game? Was a, I can recall it being a terrible conditions, uh, wet weather. I think Samoa had just beaten Wales a few days before. So, you know, it, it all of a sudden became a, a game of quite significance for the Wallabies, correct? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like every game in the World Cup is obviously significant. It was absolutely horrendous. I think it was in Pontypool was... The game, there was, you know, if, if it was in today's standards, they would have called the game off. The, right. the mud was up above your ankles um, and it was torrential rain. I think we only won by a few points. Mm. We had the, the best of the game. Predominantly, we tried to keep the ball in the forwards because every time we passed it out the back, it kept dropping it, knocking it on. And so I think we actually did uh, about a 45-metre um, shove in the scrum at one stage. But it was a tough game. The Samoans are always tough. That come off the highs of of a, of a win against one of the big majors, so they were really pumped up. The big thing about those guys is once they start losing, the Samoans they used to make sure you know if they they couldn't win the game, they wanted to take a head with them. So you just had to be pretty careful. Yeah, okay. Well, well, let's talk about that that um, that aggressiveness. And uh, I think I can't recall if it was Simon Portovan or Nick Farr Jones we had recently. They talked about uh, in the lead up, and I think it was to the New Zealand semi final. Um, and there was a, a bit of a fracker at training, um, and, and it was funny hearing Porto talk it up. Both of them, in fact, said it was a good sign that the team was, you know, keyed up and ready for the next big game uh, between the, uh, I guess, the reserves and the, the backups and the starting team. Assuming you were involved there, Krause, at some position? Oh, it was always, it was good, you know, the, the fact of the, uh, that everybody was primed. Everybody, like, fellas like myself, we were really keen to get out there and play. Yeah. And obviously you couldn't play, so you, you take your, your frustrations out on the training paddock, I suppose. The guys who were playing, they wanted, they had to train hard. You know, it was Bob Templeton was the forwards coach with Bob DeWy. You know, they, they were talking to, um, the reserves and, and, uh, the other fellas before the, who weren't in the run on squad beforehand. And, you know, that job was to really put the boys as hard as possible through their paces during the week to make sure they were absolutely prepared for the game on the weekend, you know, that was our job. So, you know, the guys left no stone unturned and we went out and belted them. And obviously, uh, if you're really physical at training, sometimes the, 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 the temper gets a little bit frayed and the boys get a little bit narky. So, but it is a great sign. It just means that everybody's absolutely focused. Oh, it's great to hear. I was wondering whether there might have been some words from the coaches there just to make sure that the, uh, the starting team were on, on their toes. What about the World Cup final? Again, you know, you sat on the bench for this. What are your memories of that whole event and that week experience uh, from your perspective? And how do you prepare for that, given you know you're starting on the bench, you know you're not get a game, but you may, you know, who knows, worst case scenario, end up playing 79 minutes. How, how do you, how could you re- prepare yourself for that event? Oh, it's, you, you go through the week like, uh, like all players do. You, you prepare the best you can. You make sure that, you know, from my perspective, it could be the, the loose head or the tight head side that you're coming on. So you've got to make sure that you're prepared to go on both sides. Uh, you've also got to prepare. So there's two different positions in the line So you've got to ensure that whatever period of time that you do come on, that you know exactly where you fit and how you fit. So 
And the beauty we had, um, and I, you know, it's easy for me to say because I was on the bench, but you you can really rate a team on, on how good their bench is. And yeah. we we had a strong we had strong backup guys, and and so the you know Rod McQueen and Co they they had no problem with regards to slipping guys on. You know, you've got the caliber I think of people like Jason Little. You know, like you know, a world class player who's sitting there ready to get on at any stage gets on the field and carves it up. Same with people like Alan Finnegan. They score that magnificent try, you know. So everybody uh, did their part. During the week, again, it was a case of making sure that everybody was focused, levelling, making sure the aggression was levelled, you know. It was upbeat and, it was, and the tempo was there and everybody was doing their job and everybody knew that at the end of the day we had the price. Interestingly enough, you know, we were sitting there to, beforehand and I know this might sound a little bit uh, arrogant, but watching the Kiwis play the week before against the French, and I would have dead set put my house yeah. on the Kiwis, knocking the French over in that game. But as soon as that game was over and we saw that the French had knocked over the Kiwis, we knew, you know, it wasn't spoken about yep. um, much, but we knew that the French had played their final by beating the Kiwis. They'd already, they'd already done what they wanted to do. So we were quietly confident that if we played... Uh, as well as we knew we could play, that we would knock them over and would knock them over well. Yeah, fantastic. What about you? I mean, the difference between that 91 World Cup and 99, obviously the game went professional, um, and it would seem around that 99 campaign, I guess when McQueen started coaching in 98, the whole strength and conditioning side of things started to get a bit of an upheaval and, I guess, gain more focus. As a front row, uh, remind me, because you were never known for being a, a massive prop can you re- recall your playing weight back in your amateur days and what you were around 99 yeah absolutely we had a fellow the conditioning coach who got brought in by rob mcqueen was a fellow by the name of steve vance so yep. steve had i suppose uh, built his brand on being the strength and conditioning coach for the brisbane broncos yep. when they were at their prime fantastic bloke nancy you know he he would train both sessions with the forwards and the backs He's 20 years older than all the boys, and he put us to shame. Really? He was uh, a freak. Yeah, absolutely, unbelievable. And but but the, the level of where we were at in in '98 compared to where we were at the end of '99 was light years away. You know, he he flogged us, and he knew that we had a lot more in us that we didn't even know we'd had. So he he he's an unsung hero for that '99 World Cup on being able to get to the guys to the to the the level they needed to be to be able to play. Um, and win the, the World Cup, but throughout that period of time, you know, as you said, I was very light for a front row. Oh, I used to struggle to actually keep weight on yeah, um, because right. we do so much training. So whereas other guys, when they go on tour, they used to put weight on. So I used to actually lose it too much. So we used to have actually have weighing sessions um, every day or two before training. So everybody'd have to lie up and, and do weighing where they'd pack your weight and all that sort of stuff. My problem was that McQueen and Nance were up me about losing weight. So <laughs> I used to actually go to the weigh-ins because we'd have our tracksuits on. I'd be stuffing cutlery down my pockets <laughs> and, and trying to pick up anything and try and add a couple of kilos to make sure they weren't up me too much. So my, my playing weight, I was, you know, the, the heaviest I would have been at any stage would have been 108 dripping wet. Yeah, right, okay. And, and can you remember what you were, how light you were, sort of 91? Uh, well, I remember, in, would you believe, I remember playing my first test uh, in the British Lions. I was not a 96. Is that right? Isn't that amazing? <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was packing against David Sowell, yep. 
uh, who was the captain of Scotland, and yep. he was only 98. Yeah, I was going to say he wasn't a big prop either. Um, but no. fantastic technique, the both of you. Um, it's interesting you say that about um, Steve Nance and the impact he had and, and how hard he worked you and how hard you had, because one of the things I, I noted looking back at that 99 tournament was, uh, again, and you featured in, in, I think, most games. You started versus USA and you'd come off the bench regularly. But the one game you didn't come off the bench, and this surprised me, was that semi-final versus South Africa, I don't believe, unless I got the wrong stats. And, in fact, there weren't many reserves used in that game, which is astronomical given that it was extra time and that it was also such a physical encounter. Yeah, it was. Before that game and... um... I, Alec Evans was uh, Ford's coach who'd been there and Alec had been my coach through at, at club level at yep. South and at Queensland for a number of years and so we've had a fairly long relationship and at that time their the biggest worry was that the South Africans had a really big pack and so you know they actually uh, he and I remember this he and uh, and uh, Rob McQueen actually came and saw me at the start of the week and and they they sat down with me at the time and said you know, how do you reckon you'll go if you have to go on in the first minute at tight head? Because I'd moved predominantly to loose head. Yeah, right. I could play tight head, but it was, you know, a harder, harder position yep. um, once you hadn't played it cons- uh, consistently. And I said, mate, if, I, if if you want me to go be truthful, I said, I'm going to struggle against the size of someone like I was yep. in the first or second minute. I said, Get, getting tired after 20 or 30, I'll be right. But, you know, if you're saying how I'm going to go in the first minute, I'd probably, yeah, it'll be tough. And so as a result of that, they said, well, we're thinking about putting uh, Rod Moore in it at uh, reserve. And I oh, said, well, you right. guys have got to make, you guys have got to make your decision, you know, you, whatever you think is best for the game and, you know, to the team. Uh, but I knew at that stage my answer was probably going to rule me out of the rest of the World Cup and, and, uh, I retired from international rugby after the, after the tournament. So I thought, you know, the answer I give is probably going to wipe me out for the rest of my career internationally. But anyway, you know, it was one of those things. I gave them the answer. They put more on as reserve. Um, for some reason, and I, I didn't ask and, and didn't want to know, they didn't put Rod um, on throughout that tournament. Dick Harry was playing, as I said, yep. was playing really good football. So he had a, he had a fantastic game in that, that game against South Africa. And so I think at the time they saw he was playing well. He wasn't looking, you know, physically at the time. So if he's not doing anything wrong, they wanted to keep him on. So... At the end of that game, I thought naturally, you know, when when we did go to the final, that they would want to stick with Rod, but they came back and said, look, we want to put you in for the final. They've got a different pack, you know. From my perspective, you know, my um, I could I could match it with most of the boys, yep. but um, you know, I was more mobile than than other props around the place, so they wanted more mobility in the against the Frenchman in the final, so they wanted that option. So I was very fortunate to get to get picked. Um, to be in that squad and then, and then get on in the latter stages of the game. Yeah, so you got to run there. How was that experience to be on the field there for a Rugby World Cup final? Yeah, it was, it was you know, being being involved the whole way through, you sort of, uh, you, you're so intent and focused on, on just the game and everything going on yeah. that you sort of lose everything else around you, you know. So when they're saying warm up and get on, you're just itching to get on and have a bit of a crack. So yeah, for the limited time I was, I was on there, you know, it was, it was great to have a bit of fun and, you know, I heard in your intro you were talking about the guys who are involved in yep. in those World Cups. You know, the people like you know Eelsie and and Horan and, and and so on. They they they're the guys who had loved the platform. I was just fortunate enough to be able to hold on to their shirt tails as we went through for a decade. 
Now, you mentioned that was your last test. You, had you made the decision before the World Cup or during the World Cup to retire, or what was the story there? Wait, waited till it was finished? Yeah, well, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd actually... I'd already made the decision that... Because I was, I was married, I had three kids at that stage, and I'd made the decision that I was just going... And I was getting on as well, you know, yeah. with one of the older boys of the, of the, of the group. And so the body you know, never wasn't recovering as well. And so I'd made the decision that I still wanted to be part of Queensland. I had a contract with Queensland. Right, okay. And that actually, it was the start of the different contracting as well. So I was actually the first one uh, uh, through that era to actually um, negotiate with Queensland a contract that didn't include Australia. And, uh, and okay. I'd signed a deal. I'd signed a deal with Queensland. And then when... Um, Australia came and said, well, you know, we've got to work out where you, you know, you contract with us. The next year I said, well, I don't want a contract with you guys. I've done a deal with Queensland. I'm not playing in the national rugby. And at that stage, John O'Neill was really strong on, on the fact that he wanted, you know, all the positions available for Australia. And, uh, there was a a little bit of a conversation where it was, uh, we'll see how it goes. So miraculously, I was predominantly on the bench. For right. the next Queensland season, while the people who were available we'll to play for Australia played, yeah, right. And Just... so I, I had a, I had a multi-year contract with Queensland, but I could see that I was going to be, you know, sitting on the bench, and and uh, and the Australian Rugby Union were going to have their way. Yeah. And so I decided that uh, that that I'd cut cut it short. Well, an amazing career, and, and like you say, a, a rare group to have won two World Cups. Now, '99 was obviously. Our the last World Cup we've won. I need to ask you the question: Given it's 2015 World Cup this year, does Australia have what it takes to win a third World Cup this year? Good question. And if I knew the answer, uh, I'd be a multi-millionaire. Yeah. Would I? <laughs> oh, to tell you the truth, I, I don't know, and yeah. and that's the the truth at the moment. I, the way uh, you know the the provincial teams have been up and down. We've had guys who have been playing really good football, but they've been very spasmodic. And they haven't, and the teams haven't been gelling as well as they possibly could be. And the Brumbies always well. New South Wales have played um, good football in patches throughout the year, but not consistently. So we've had some good players, but now it's going to be interesting to see. And I can't really make a decision until after I see a couple of the games yeah. in the rugby championship to see how Checker tries and gels them together. One of the things which I've always remembered, and I, and I repeat, is Bob DeWise said many years ago, he said, for, for, for you to win a World Cup, you need to have uh, five or six World, Club, World 15 players. And, you know, if you look at 91 and you look at 99, we had, you know, those five or so World Class, mm-hmm. you know, World 15 players they would have, they would have romped it in. If you look at the players we've got in, in the Australian, you know, field at the moment, I don't know if we, we've got that many guys who could put their hand up, if, if any, yeah. who could put their really, truly put their hand up and be part of a World 15 team. So if, if it's true in, in that aspect, then Australia are going to, to find it tough. In saying that, though, sometimes, and, and Checo, I don't know him well, but he seems to be a person who knows how to get the boys together, yep. get them to gel and if he can do that, you never you never know what happens. And and the boys will always have a you know never never say die attitude. So you never you never write off the fellas. But at the moment, I just couldn't 
I couldn't say. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm with you, mate. Well, let's look at uh, one last question. It's I want to look at your old position in the front row. And uh, today, I don't know if you've heard the news that, that uh, poor Alo Emil, the young Rebels tight head, is going to miss the tournament because of injury. Not sure whether he would have been factored into considerations here anyway, but uh, he uh, he's out with a shoulder injury. So, Dan, from your perspective, who should be the Wallaby starting props and, and who should be our all-important backups in the squad? Uh, again, it's, you know, I have to tell you the truth, I haven't really been following the yep. um, as as closely as I should be, yep. and uh, so it's a it's a tough one for me to really to, to really say. Uh, I think in the in the hooker's position, obviously Moore is is a vital. I think that he can really lead the guys. Yep. There's a number of the number of, of different props play well, but across the board, so I, I can't really give you anybody specifically. Yep. My concern is across across the board. It doesn't matter what team it is. It is the consistency um, that we've been showing in Australian teams in in the scrummaging department, and it, it, it's concerning because the boys will turn on and they can show that they can mix it with the best, and they can even beat the best when they want to put it all together. And again, I use Alec Evans' analogy. He, he talks about the, the the scrum being like a rowing eight. If you don't have everybody in sync and everybody working together, then it's not going to work. But if you have them in sync and you have them all rowing together, then you really motor. And at the moment, the guys will put one scrum and they'll sink, and the next three, they won't sink, and one, they'll get destroyed. Yeah. And you just can't... You know, If we want to win a World Cup and we want to be up there with the best and competing with the best, we can't have that inconsistency, whether it be the scrum, the line-out, any moves around the park. And if you look at those teams in 91 and 99, and we haven't talked about 95, we didn't have yeah, a I good know. enough team <laughs> to win 95. Yep. No, we didn't have a good enough no, team. No. And um, if, if if we want to be able to do it, the one thing about 91 and 99 is the boys were consistent. If yep. you look at 98, the year before the World Cup final, we played against the Kiwis. In one half, we played it in Christchurch. The guys didn't give away one penalty in the yeah. half. Wow. Yeah. And that's and that's the sort of discipline that if these guys want to win a World Cup, they've got to use that sort of discipline in all the set pieces, in all their plays, and make sure they're not giving anything to the opposition, giving them a sniff. If they do that, then they've got an opportunity to really make a dent in the tournament. If they don't, then they're going to falter. Yep. Okay. Great words there. Dan, uh, look, really appreciate your time tonight. Loved watching you as a player. Um, loved having you on the podcast tonight. It was a real three for me personally, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it too. Uh, best of luck uh, to the Wallabies this year. Let's hope they can join yourself as a rugby world champion come October in uh, Twickenham. My pleasure for, for giving me the opportunity to have a chat, and I'm always behind the Wallabies, and I hope everybody else will be with them too. Good stuff, Krause. Thanks a lot. Well, there we go, guys. Dan Crowley uh, moving up into the serious business now. The front rowers, Rugby World Cup legend. Dan, one of the sort of unheralded um, guys from those two championship teams. And I thought it was a nice different perspective. We've had, obviously, some absolute legends on so far. And I thought Crowley was great because he is one of those guys who has won two World Cups, which is very rare. But he was very much a, uh, what they call them, the, the Reggies, which is appropriate, one of the dirties um, 
the dirt trackers in both campaigns and it was interesting to see his perspective of, of both tournaments and the role he played so thanks to Krause and thanks once again to Queensland Rugby for their support of that aspect of our podcast and now I'm going to call in another couple of legends um, you know them, you love them <laughs> and uh, it's uh, a Waratah and a Brumby so we're going to, you know what we're going to talk about Hugh and Steve, how are you lads? Hugh, you first mate, all going well? Yeah, all going well. Um, Wallaby squad announced tomorrow in Sydney. I see a few Drew Mitchell and Matt Guido on their way to Sydney. And um, look, without giving away too many hints, I'm in Sydney as well. So um, <laughs> why that is. But uh, yeah, we'll talk about that later in the podcast. Well, the press release did say that there is an uncapped player to be named. And let's not get too Sydney-centric. They're doing a release up here in Brisbane as well. And actually, Michael Cheek is up here in Sydney. So uh, up, up here in Brisbane. So that'll be interesting. And Steve... Oh, you are you trying to say that... Uh, well, we still haven't signed a head well. coach for next year yet, mate. So we'll see. <laughs> Um, Steve from Canberra, how are you going, mate? I'm good, thanks. How are you guys? Any ARU announcements in Canberra tomorrow, mate? Uh, not, as, not as I'm aware of. Yeah, uh, they, they've already been this year, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, okay. All right, guys, we've got to get straight to it. The uh, semi-finals of Super Rugby involving uh, both teams, Brumbies and the Waratahs, our last remaining hopes. Let's start with uh, you, Steve, and the Hurricanes, Brumbies. Hurricanes getting up. 29 to 9. You know, I think it was always going to be against you guys. Obviously, lost Henry Spate through uh, suspension and having to uh, uh, travel over to uh, Wellington after your big trip back from South Africa. What was your read of the match, Steve? Oh, yeah, the Brumbies looked okay for the first maybe five minutes, and then after that, it was all hurricanes. They just, like, pardon the pun, blew them off the park in that uh, first 20 minutes. You know, it took. 20 minutes for the Hurricanes to score first, but I think um, after the, or the first 10 minutes leading up to that, they were just camped in the Brumbies 22, and I think they just tried to tire them out by just making them make hundreds of tackles. You know, they missed a lot, but uh, you look at the way the Hurricanes were playing, particularly with that uh, width game they were playing, like early on with using Sevilla, who must have caused about 25 tackles on his own, and then uh, the other winger, uh, Milner Scudder, you know, they started to open it up and then uh, it just went, you know, they opened the floodgates there. You know, the Brumbies did okay to how it was 12-3 at halftime, I don't know. It could have been a lot more than that. And they got to within 10 points at one stage, but I think they had their game plan spot on with trying to nullify Pocock at the breakdown and they did a very good job of that. You know, Artie Sevilla went to town there and uh, there were a few other good supporters in there with, uh, I think, Brad Shields and just the whole the whole pack in general just did a very good job keeping the the Brumbies quiet because it was almost like a, a reverse game with the um, the Stormers and they just came out of the blocks and just um, couldn't get over couldn't get anything done and um, yeah so twenty nine nine in the end was probably a very flattering scoreline considering how much ball the Hurricanes did have yeah uh, it's that back line of that Hurricanes it's you know. It's up there with some of the best we've seen in Super Rugby, I reckon. The, you, you look from from 9 to 15, um, particularly when you, you talk about Myrna Scudder this year has as a rookie has come on sensationally. So um, they really look sharp this game. Um, Hugh, from your perspective, what was your thoughts on it? Yeah, I kind of agree with Steve. I mean, the Brumbies looked pretty flat in that opening half, and, and obviously the writing was on the wall pretty early, but at halftime at 12-3, you mm. thought, geez, they might still be in it, and if the bounce of the ball goes their way, they might get back in the game. But the 
Hurricanes scored pretty quickly after half time and and the Brumbies battled on pretty well, but you, yeah, we're never really within Kui. I think it's all well, you know, Pocock was taken out of the game and, and so were a lot of the Brumbies forwards, but I think that a lot of that comes back to just the defense of the Brumbies, which was probably the worst I've seen it all year. Just a lot of basic missed first up tackles, um, and, uh, really letting the Hurricanes have a bit of, have space and, and, and momentum, which you just can't do, uh, especially when you're playing over, uh, in the cake tin there. So that really didn't allow Pocock to come into the game. And, and that was also the effective ball running of the Hurricanes. And, and, um, geez, they, uh, they looked the goods because they really could have, as, as you're right, Steve, could have won by a lot more. Yeah, they just looked very slick there, didn't they? Uh, Steve, any talk out of the capital? On, I, I think they're too much of a professional team to suggest this in terms of the impact of that trip from South Africa. Uh, yeah, like they've done it twice in three years now, so um, they, you know, they're very um, adamant that it had nothing to do with it. But realistically, they had two major training sessions in two weeks. So you're taking the travel to Cape Town the first week, uh, they think they had one good training in the captain's run, and then they came back after that victory. Had uh, they got back on, on a Monday night, uh, light training Tuesday, bit of training Wednesday, and then fly out Thursday, and then captain's run uh, Friday. So it's only really two major sessions in two weeks. So that's you know you can lose your edge uh, with a couple of weeks off, and uh, you know, it, it looked that was to be the case in that game. Yeah, I mean. On, I, I don't want to appear harsh, Reg. I mean, I think the Brumbies have got off the hook a little bit because of the travel. Yeah, um, sure. I think a lot of the criticism has been very muted. If you look on our front page, the uh, Waratahs game has 220-odd comments on the article, whereas the Brumbies game's only probably got about 40. Um, and uh, I think some of the more experienced Wallabies in that Brumbies forward pack really let the team down. Um, I thought a guy like Ben Alexander, who must have fallen off, you know, six or seven tackles, and and even you know Steve Moore slipped off a few. Scotty Fardy, and actually I thought the, a few that the the players that uh, were the standouts were the unheralded guys. I thought Blake Enova mm. um, ha- had a really good game uh, as well. So look, I, I think the travel's obviously a massive factor, but um, still I think the Brumbies will be pretty disappointed with how they performed. Yeah, I've got no doubt. It's an interesting perspective you say about that. I, I, I've got a feel not many people um, expected the, the Brumbies to achieve much um, on the back of the travel, on the back of the, the fact that they're playing the Hurricanes as much as anything. But you're right, those missed tackles, I think 35 tackles I saw uh, earlier today when I was checking the stats, and, and you're bang on, Alexander and, and um, Moore, I think, contributed a, about a third of those themselves. So some key um, players there let them down. Um Let's move on to your game then, Hugh, and, and the Tars versus the Highlanders. Um, uh, again, it was a, a you know a, a bit of a blowout. You'd suggest them. It was tight there at halftime, 15-14, ended up being 35-17, um, and some you know a few significant moments, which I've got no doubt we'll uh, we'll get to in the game. Hugh, what was your read of this one? Well, yeah, I mean, again, the Tars, much like the Brumbies, just were flat. And they yeah. came out flat in that first half and, and that kind of continued through the whole game. And, and they were still in it, you know, for the bulk of it. It, it wasn't quite the same as the Hurricanes game where you thought that the, they were lucky to be in it. I mean, at halftime, the Waratahs, you know, had their noses in front and, and you felt like, well, they probably still got this game. They can put the foot on the accelerator and, 
they've they've probably got it. But uh, the hurricane, the Highlanders, sorry, just came out after half time and and um, again continued the momentum and and the bounce of the ball went their way and 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 the Tars made mistakes and obviously the the talking point was the the Jacques Potgita uh, yellow card and penalty try, um, which put the Highlanders up by ten um, and really took all of the wind out of the Waratah sails. And, and I think looking back on it, I think they almost gave up the ghost at that point and that was only the 50-minute mark. And, and they had still 20 minutes, you know, 10 minutes a man down and 20 minutes uh, with a full complement at the end to work their way back into the game. But really they never looked like doing it, which was a bit disappointing for, uh, you know, so far a pretty good season in the defending champions with a lot of experience against, you know, the Highlanders who who as a lot's been made of the fact that, you know, not many All Blacks in that team and uh, not many experienced blokes with experience in finals footy. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, look, the better side won on the day and the Highlanders did their homework and really uh, hit all of the all of the Waratahs' weak spots. You know, they they, they kept the ball away from Falau. Uh, they kicked to the corner as well. They pressured the line out and it was a pretty simple game plan um, and it won, It was one that the Waratahs weren't, weren't good enough to uh, keep out. Yeah, the... Um uh, uh, Steve, give us your thoughts on the game, mate, before we go, before I go further. Uh, no, I think Hugh was spot on there, and I, I think a lot was made of the Highlanders' tactical uh, ability in that game to keep the Waratahs' strengths very quiet, and particularly kicking to those corners, because it made the, the big guys like Naya Ravoro and those in particular to have to turn and chase. Um, and you look at that try that Naholo scored, you know, he managed to... Um, have to make him turn around, and I didn't think he would ever get there, but he did. But that's just the, how the Highlanders have been this year. You know, like you said, they don't have. I think is, is it no All Blacks in their forward squad uh, forwards from the weekend. Yeah, I think. I think yeah, that's, that's suggest, right. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, dishing up um, a Wallaby laden pack, I guess you could say. So that doesn't look good for future games. But yeah, the Highlanders tactical game spot on. Couldn't argue with that. Yeah, and look, we, we don't know um, how many of those will evolve into the All Blacks, but uh, it was an excellent performance. What about, uh, likewise, um, Hugh, some of those key players, we talked about the Brumbies. There's a lot of talk uh, online as a game, a lot of frustration around uh, the halves combination for the Waratahs. It probably wasn't Foley's and Phipps's best game. Uh, no, that's true. And, and look, um, something that really contributed to that um, was the absence of Kirtley Beale. Yep. I think um, we saw it in the Reds game, and Nick Phipps really struggled, um, and so did Bernard Foley, with not having that second option to relieve a bit of pressure. Um, and that doesn't excuse, um, obviously, any of their errors, but uh, it certainly does explain why the Waratahs certainly struggled in the back line. Um, they had Matt Carraro playing 12, who was carrying a broken thumb, um, and that was pretty quickly exposed to be a factor. Um, in his in his play, he was really disappointing and was subbed off at about the 50 minute mark. Um, it's uh, it's it's a worrying it's a worrying sign. Uh, given Phipps and Foley are the incumbent Wallaby half combination, I think Phipps you can put it down to just a bad day at the office, a couple of errant passes. But Foley, um, just that, you know, in a big physical game like that, you would ex- expect it a little bit more. And and the way the the Highlanders targeted him. Uh, when he dropped back on defence and they peppered him with high balls and he really struggled to cope. Uh, and that's got to be a worry um, for Michael Trekker as well as his kicking game, which was below its best uh, yet again. So, 
yeah, some worrying signs there uh, for the Waratahs, as well as, you know, in, in the pack, I thought Michael Hooper had a really quiet game as well. Yeah. And uh, his ball running was really needed because um, we just kept struggling. You know, the Waratahs struggled to get over the game line yeah. uh, throughout the night and, and not enough blokes were putting their hand up. And the other big one was the line-out didn't function, uh, did it? Lost a, a lot of ball. I think they, I think the, the success rate for the line-out was less than 70% for the Waratahs, um, which from a set-piece perspective, um, you know, puts you behind the eight ball. Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, I think a lot, a lot of commenters look at that and say, well, Will Skelton, you know, you're carrying Will yeah. Skelton who can't, who's not a jumper. But I think that's a really big oversimplification of how yep. line-outs work. And, 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 you know, just because... You, you know, just adding another option or adding another two options or three options to your lineup doesn't solve the problem. I mean, it's about speed, it's about accuracy, it's about um, creativity in your calls, it's about mixing it up. Um, and the Waratahs didn't do that, but also it was really well read by the Highlanders. It mm. wasn't that the Waratahs were overshooting the throw or that they were missing lifts or anything. It was that the Highlanders were were, were getting up as well. Um, and um, Probably again pointing to the Waratahs not being fast enough and not moving um, with enough urgency. But yeah, it's it's a big been a big worry through the back half of the season for the Waratahs the lineup and um, yeah, kind of fitting in the end that it, it might have been their downfall because they couldn't um, couldn't fix it. And when you you know you, you proves in the big games that you need your set piece firing on all cylinders. Otherwise, you're uh, fighting with one hand tied behind your back. Yeah, which uh, brings us to the final this weekend, guys. And I, I know there's hope uh, that it might be a, an all-Aussie final. In the end, it will be an all-New Zealand final. But let's not... Look, we, and we'll talk Wallaby stuff soon. We shouldn't be too despondent. It's I know both of you be disappointed uh, for your respective teams losing and, and somewhat in the way they lost. But uh, still a, a wonderful achievement for Australian rugby to have two teams in the Super Rugby semi-finals. So it's the Canes versus the Highlanders this week. The Canes have sort of led from the start and the Highlanders have been somewhat um, uh, come through uh, under a lot of people's guard. Uh, Steve, I'll go to you first. How do you reckon this game will pan out? I honestly think the Hurricanes are going to win this one, and there's a couple of reasons. Well, obviously, they finished first on the ladder and have been the most consistent side throughout the season. Um, and you look at how they've, or how their fixtures have been this year. You know, the last, I think, 10 weeks, they haven't had to travel too far. I think the big furthest trip was to, to Auckland. So they're going to have that, uh, I guess, familiar, familiarity. I can get that out properly. Um, you know, training in the same place, uh, not having to travel too far. And things like that, you know, they they did their travel in the first three weeks, so that was all over and done for them. Uh, and also, I don't think an away side's won the final since 2007, so I think all things are going to point to a Hurricanes victory. You know, it's going to be a good game. Let's let's not be stupid about that. Um, those these two teams probably deserve to be there in the end, and hopefully, um, it's good and they can maybe just injure a few of them for us. Yeah, it's exactly right. Um, although we don't play the All Blacks for some time. Um, and Hugh, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with Steve. I think it's the Hurricanes uh, for me. I said last week, I've just had a feeling for a while now that it's their year, um, and uh, I don't think the Highlanders are going to stop them. I, I expect it to be a great game, though. Really looking forward to it. And look, the Highlanders, everyone's written them off all year, every every game, and, and so I think it's in the spirit that we write them off again and uh, see if they can prove us wrong. But I just think the Highlanders have, you know... They're the story of, uh, sorry, the Hurricanes are the story for the year. They've played the best all year. They deserve the title, and uh, I look forward to seeing them um, have a crack at it. Yeah, I think it's three for three. I think I'll tip the Hurricanes as well, and 
And for all the reasons you guys have just said, uh, it'll be a fantastic game. These two teams, backline on backline, it's so exciting. Perinara versus Smith and and is one of the standouts. I, I, I can't wait to see, obviously, on the wings there uh, with Naholo and, and Sevilla and, and the likes as well. Special for the Hurricanes with with Jerry Collins' uh, recent passing. I think that just adds to the to the sort of a momentum behind them. Uh, let's hope it's a it's a, a fine weekend. Just checking the forecast. A fair bit of wet rain around on Friday, but Saturday is meant to be fine because if it's the right conditions, this game could be just an absolute cracker. Um, and let's hope it is. Um, and that's on 5:30 on Saturday afternoon uh, for the. Uh, East Coast Australians. Um, all right, lads, we're not doing a, uh, a, a five burning questions. What we're going to do with the Wallaby squad to, due to be announced, uh, we're recording this on Wednesday night, so Thursday during the middle of the day, and that'll still be the squad. We've got a preliminary squad, but this will be the final squad. Um, we thought it's appropriate to... Uh, we'll have a go at selecting our Wallaby team for the first test uh, that's coming up uh, versus the Springboks, which will be on uh, in Brisbane on July 18. So uh, still a little while ago. It's about three weeks away, but uh, let's have a go. Recognising there's obviously uh, a few confirmed out. Uh, Paul Aloamil from uh, the Rebels, the uh, tight head prop, is out uh, of the season, for the season, including the Rugby World Cup, uh, having surgery, I think it's on a shoulder, and obviously Henry Spate, uh, the Brumbies appealed, but uh, the suspension stands and Spate's got to be sitting out for a few more weeks as well. So um, he'll be out as well. So uh, let's go through this, Steve. Let's start with your back line. What's your thoughts on what back line you'd like to see in that first test team? Well, before last weekend, you'd think that uh, Phipps and Foley would have been the, the two on the sheet, um, but you know, they didn't have the greatest game. But I just think with Checo, you know, it's been the fir- it's the first uh, game of the season. I, I just don't know if he's going to change too much from the end of season to You know, obviously he was brought in so late, so I, d- I don't know if he's going to change too much there. Um, obviously, there's a, a few um, people out of form and, and so forth, but I think he's he'll probably might give them uh, first crack, I guess, and then obviously changes after that. So. I honestly can't see too much changing from the end of the season. So, you know, Phipps and Foley will probably be there. Um, left wing is an interesting one. Um, Rob Horn has been he's been very good, and I think he's been the Waratahs' best this year um, in the back line. Uh, 12 will be an interesting one because I think Tamua, he's been out injured a fair bit. So whether that's going to count against him or maybe he's still struggling with it, I'm not sure. Uh, Kuandrani at 13, I'd say. Um, he's been pretty pretty solid without being too too great, but solid. Um, and I guess that would mean maybe Ashley Cooper to the right wing because he, he's the versatility guy in that. And then Falau at fullback. Let's not be stupid there. He's going to be there first on the on the sheet, I'd say. Okay, I think I'm going to be stupid. Um, <laughs> but I want to hear from Hugh, mate. Any changes to that? Anything you see differently? Oh, I, I, a little bit. I, I kind of agree Phipps and Foley will probably start, more so because Quade Cooper's injury concerns, and I think tomorrow might reveal how how bad that is with, with his injury. But um, I'd be very hesitant to start him in the first up test, uh, even though I think probably in the long run he might be our option at 10. So Phipps and Foley in the halves for me, Tamua and Kurandrani in the centres, um, and... Uh, 
um, picking the two form wingers. I'm not really going the left right thing. I think you just pick your two best. So I pick yeah. Horn and Horn and Tamane, um, Tamani, Tamone, <laughs> Tamuna, Joe Tamone, Tamua. Uh, yeah, um, Sidaleki Tamani on the wing. Um, and and uh, and full out fullback. Actually, I think there's quite a few automatic selections, and and it's once I just thought about it for the first time, it's actually. I think it's a bit of, there's quite a few no-brainers there, um, which is, just, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I, I think more or less continuing where we left off on the end-of-season tour. Yeah, okay. Look, I uh, it's interesting my perspective of this. I've really struggled picking uh, a Wallaby team this year, and more often than not, I've avoided it um, just because I, I struggle to justify a lot of the selections. Um, so I've picked one here. And the other thing I would normally do, and I think I've been probably preaching it a bit this season, is that, we need continuity, so we need that same team picked along the way. I've probably flown in the face of uh, that sort of advice here. Um, I, I guess I should ask a question. How long's Beal out for? Is he? What's his status? Is he, he likely to be available? I think he will be, yeah. yeah. All right, because this is my first selection uh, um, controversy. I've picked him at fullback. Blast for me. Yeah, no. <laughs> this is on the, the stupidity in me. Uh, I still have issues with Falau as a fullback. Um, I think he's, he's got a limited game back there. He, he makes, he, you know, he'll, he'll beat the defender more often than not, um, but he's proven pretty one-dimensional. I thought his tour last year was pretty disappointing. Um, I'd have him on the wing, and, and that's sort of heightened by the fact that Spite's not there, and I'd have Beal at fullback. Maintaining, and, you know, gosh, I hate, you know, I've had many frustrations over Beal, but... Perhaps I'm just thinking back to those glory but days of um, of uh, when Beal sort of ruled the world as a fullback. Um, back, geez, I don't even know when that was in, but so perhaps 2010, maybe. Yeah, I was going to say 2009, 2010. Um, and it's just an all-important another kicking option for us. I just think that kicking at the back there is going to be pretty critical for us. Um, I also think if you throw in someone like Beal back there who can boot and can attack, uh, it's going to change some. Uh, some game plans of the opposition. I think New Zealand, South Africa, I think England and Wales will all be planning for Falao at the back without a boot, pitting him in the corner. If you can throw someone back there who's got a boot, he can also be in another attacking option. I think that's a good plan. Um, I've got the same centres as you guys, TK, uh, Matty Tamua. Uh, Matty, obviously, dependent on, on, on injury, but I, I, he's my man there. A lot of chat in the forum or around the place around Kurandrani hasn't been on top of his game, but... He was like that last year and had a Dino, um a Wallaby series. Uh, Robbie Horn's my wing, other wing as well. Uh, he's been fantastic. Uh, Nick Phipps, uh, you said it, Hugh. I think you could forgive him for his last game. He'd be uh, kicking himself, but I think he's proved to be the best Wallaby scrum half uh, for the last couple of years. Um, Cooper's a big one. I would have picked Cooper, but I have concerns over his injury. So I've picked Matt Giddo. I think um, not necessarily because I believe in it, uh, but I think, as we all know, he's flying back today, and uh, I think he will be there. Uh, I, I don't have to tell you guys. I'm not a fan of Foley. I don't think he's a he's a a, a, a Test match winner. I, I don't think he's got the game to win us um, the big games, uh, let alone Rugby World Cup. So uh, I, I think we need to find an alternative. And uh, if Cooper's out, Giddo's the man for mine. It's funny. I was I was toying with this today, this afternoon, and it's interesting you said it, Reg. And it hasn't really occurred to me because I've always kind of thought of Gitto as a 12 and especially that's, you know, 
for some reason, that's where I thought he fit yeah. in the overall Wallaby puzzle. But then today I said, well, why not 10? Because you think he's probably plays a similar kind of game to Foley. They're both pretty, mm. pretty small blokes and they, you know, um, are good distributors, mm. but certainly Gitto's a much better defender than Foley. Mm. Um, and he's probably got a better kicking game too. Yep. Um, so you kind of wonder what the upside is to Foley in, uh, compared to Gitto. So, um, it's, it's certainly an option, Reg. I, I, I think I'd be interested to see, uh, if we get to see that at any point because, um, I'd be really interested to see how it goes. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. And, and it's, it's, it's how much gambling they do early on. Yeah, just on that, I just, just now you mentioned it as well. I think because Gitto being a left footer as well in that back line, um, will help because I don't think we have too many left footed kickers there. No. So it just seems to open up a different angle and a different approach at times, which will probably, which could help us at times. Yep. All right. Let's move into the forwards. Um, Steve, why don't you leave us off again? All right. Um, <clears throat> this will be one for you, Rich. Sorry about that. Um, the Reds forwards this year I thought were pretty good. So I think, uh, maybe Slipper and I'm going to say Greg Holmes might get a, a crack at, uh, tight head. Um, been pretty, pretty good this year. Um, Steve Moore obviously go at hooker. Uh, and I guess obviously we'll still have to see who Checker, um, reveals as his captain. So, um, and obviously the Brumbies line out was probably a little, a little better than others this year. So that's probably Kent in his favor. Uh, the second row is that's one I'm, I'm really not too sure about. There's, there's plenty there. A uh, couple of, uh, combinations there that will, um, obviously be need to be thought through. Uh, but I think with Rob Simmons, I think he's, he's a line out operator and the main caller, I think, for not only the Reds, but also, uh, Wallaby. So I think he'll, he will be there. Uh, just the other one, like, will it be Skelton? Uh, mate, will he, Throwing a, a debutant, I don't know. Uh, I've, I'm, that's probably the biggest position uh, question to mark at this stage. Uh, but for the back row, I think it'll be Fardy. Uh, I think Michael Hooper will start. I just don't think like Pocock's had a good year, but I just think his time away from the national setup uh, it might take him some time to get with the new program and the new coach. And for number eight. Uh, Probably McCalman, I think. You know, he's been pretty solid over there at the Force in a disappointing season. So, uh, McCalman at eight for me. All right. Good stuff. You did manage to avoid selecting that second lock. Yeah. <laughs> that's why it's <laughs> just, just names out of a hat at the moment. It, it's one that's, there's a, there's plenty there. Like I said, there's, uh, is our problem. That's right. for sure. Look, we'll pencil in Hugh Cavill for the time being. Uh, why not? Hugh, what's your, oh, thought? well, don't steal, don't steal my selections. That was <laughs> going to be mine. <laughs> Sorry. Um, again, I think a lot of them are sort of automatics. I mean, I think you'd be, um, I I wouldn't walk away from the slipper more Kepu front row combination. I thought that worked last year the best. A Wallaby front row has worked in a long time. Um, and really no signs of, of that dropping off. And though slipper is carrying a bit of an injury. Um, but I'd be starting the first test with them. Second row, uh, Simmons and Skelton. I think they're, they're, they're the two standouts. Certainly. What Skelton can provide, uh, I don't think anyone else in, in Australian rugby can, that sort of bruising physicality um, and the mall defence as well, which is going to be um, key, I think, come World Cup time. And then in the back row, I've got um, Pocock, Fardy and Ben McCalman, uh, who I think um, is probably the best combination there, although I think uh, 
Wycliffe Palu, uh, Scott Higginbotham, even Sean McMahon. Um, probably I'd like to see at some point, but uh, I'd certainly start the first test with, with those blokes that did the job for us last year and Pocock, who's done the job for us uh, previously. All right, good stuff. Look, uh, front rows again, I, I, I 100% agree with you in terms of Slipper and Kepu. I think they're our number one props. I've got real concerns about Slipper, and I, I said so on the forum today. I, I think he should be rested. I think he should be rested until we play the All Blacks. Um, let him go back to the coast and surf or whatever, and but just get away from the team for a little while. I know he's had a little time off, but I just think he needs, uh, you know, some some good R&R. Um, and... And, and Kepu, similarly, I've got no doubts about him as a player, but I'd be starting for this first test versus South Africa, uh, Holmes, as you called um, uh, Steve, uh, with Scotty Seo. I'd start Scott Seo. I think he's been fantastic in his limited opportunities this year. I think that's a really powerful scrummaging, scrummaging unit with Stephen Moore uh, at hooker. Uh, I agree with you. Hugh. Skelton and Simmons are the standout. I'd, I'm really excited about what Skelton can do at the World Cup for the exact uh, sort of reasonings you've talked about there, he'll be a real X factor, and I think we need to find a bit of X factor in this team, and and that the mall defence, ruck defence, uh, will be critical. Um, Benny McCalman's my number eight, and geez, I, I really relied on those articles on Green and Gold Rugby uh, main page for a lot of this. Um, they're so well done, and without you know sort of conclusions being drawn definitively, it stills up to the reader's interpretation. But uh, back row is about a balance. And at the time, I had Itavia picked, um, but I just thought we couldn't carry him and Skelton in the lineouts. Um, admitting Skelton's lineouts works improve, but uh, I just think that's too much of a challenge for us. Um, but I liked Mc, uh, Itavia's running game. But I've got Benny McCalman at eight, David Pocock at seven. I just think he's a test match player, um, and that's what we're going to need in this World Cup. Um, and I've got Scotty Higginbotham at six, and this one was probably my biggest question mark. Uh, I'm a Fardy fan, but I, again, I'm looking for that X factor. Um, and I know, ironically, that um, uh, I think it was Matt's article in the blind side sort of posed a few questions about Higginbotham, but I think his game was excellent this year. I think having another leader in that pack is critical, and I just think he provides um, a, a good mix uh, for that position there. Uh, good line-outs, good running game, strong defence, and another leader there as well. So, interesting. Yeah, I, I think that leader thing's underrated too, Reg. I, yeah, I, yeah. Um, I was reading an article, oddly enough, about the um, the New England Patriots uh, NFL team, and to basically sum it up is what, what they do or they have done quite successfully with their draft strategy when they pick new players is pick... Um, players out of college that were, were captains and leaders and might not have been the best players, but had the, had and one of the things they really valued was was uh, captains and leadership. Yeah, and okay. I have a feeling that it, it, that could transfer to the Wallabies. That having as many old blokes uh, like Higginbotham in there, having the captains of the individual provinces, uh, w- could make a big difference. Yeah, it was interesting. It was a, a similar theory that I had played around in my head about. Can you fit each of those um, provincial captains into the team? And obviously, slip is a given. Um, uh, you know, Dave Dennis is on the cusp, I guess. You know, but you've got Michael Hooper there. But you know, Dave, you, you might go close to the squad. Um, Steve Moore's obviously there. Higginbotham would be in the squad. You know, Matty Hodgson's the question mark over there. We've got so much depth at the open side. But it just you go back to that 1999 team and doing the interviews I've done. 
the standout for them is they're just such a smart team. And you look at that team across the board, they had leaders all over the place. You know, Eels missed most of the year, so Wilson was captain and won a Bledisloe Cup. Um, then you got Eels back, and then you had, you know, Gregham and Larkham and, and Matty Burke and, and uh, Phil Kearns. It was just such a uh, an impressive group. And I, I agree, I think that's um, a critical uh, a part or, of, of a team in this sort of... Uh, you know, the state of the Wallaby team at the moment, they're just in a bit of a state of flux, new coach, still not quite sure. And I think if you can pick those leaders that are going to do the work and sort of set the agenda for the team, it's going to be pretty critical. So um, we'll see how that all sort of pans out. The squad's going to be really interesting, actually. I, I can't wait. I kind of... It's always this time of year, it's endless possibilities and, and it's just a real... It's a blank canvas, more or less, and you... And and now we've got a new coach, and Checkers never picked a squad before. Exactly um, right, and what a squad to pick, yeah. Yeah, so you know, I'm, I don't know what the curveballs are going to be. I mean, in my heart of hearts, I'd, I'd love you know some you know someone like Adam Commodore. Certainly, I'd hate, I'd sort of cringe if the curveballs were all Waratahs players, and it was you know Takeli Nyaravoro and. You know yeah. that, that that Tolu Latu and those guys, and although you know, let's oh, all no, have no. cases in their favour. Yeah, but uh, you you kind of love to see. I don't know who I'd most love to see pick, but someone like Adam Coleman, I'd certainly yeah. like Sean McMahon to be persisted with in to- some of the Rebels guys to get a run. But um, yeah, well, uh, it's, it's the the press release coming out today, and this will all be old news come the middle of the tomorrow. Was there'd be a uh, there's two you know corresponding launches going out or announcements going out, one in Sydney, one in Brisbane, and at each one there'll be some Wallabies present that are in the squad, and at each one there's at least one debutant. So, you know, from a Queensland perspective, I, I hope to anything it's not Carmichael Hunt, surely they're not going to parade him around. But, you know, you start, <laughs> Take him away from the Gold Coast. Yeah, exactly. You start pointing to someone like Samu Karevi. Which excites me. Yeah, that was the that was the word in in one of the articles that he was going to get a run. Right, interesting. Um, um, and then down yeah. in New South Wales, I guess it's it is a a, a lot. A, I don't know, you know, Tequila Latu. Um, gosh, who had Adam been Coleman maybe? Yeah, yeah. yeah. McNair so That's who it is. <laughs> Sorry, McNair Avora. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't yeah. go to Scotland. <laughs> yeah, it, that's it. That's a massive story in itself, and we'll have to watch that as that develops. Um, well, that was good, guys. I think it was a good exercise in terms of just you know having a bit of a different think about it. I know I enjoyed it, just actually sitting down and going through the discipline of uh, of actually picking some players. It's it's interesting who uh, is around, and you talk about those other names, and yeah, will James Hansen step up now? He could conceivably be the number two hooker now. You know, concerns over Tafu. He's had a great season. Concerns over Tafu with a, you know, Latu's left his run too late. The, um, with the suspension. Itavia does he play a role? You know, does Toby Smith from the Rebels get a call up anywhere? Um, lots of interesting uh, factors to come out of tomorrow's announcement. Um, let's move on to the news. There's a fair bit of news to go through, so look, I'll run through it. If you've got anything to say, just. Uh, speak up but so this is sort of catching this last week of news uh, and the most significant around the player movements are, are two of our biggest names I guess first and foremost uh, today was the announcement that Israel Folau has re-signed with the ARU um, for three years it is a flexible contract at the same time uh, one of the Japanese clubs has and, and forgive me I, I can't recall which one has announced that, that he's signed for them as well so we're assuming he'll go to Japan straight after the World Cup which means um, 
he'll be playing the back-to-back-to-back season. So, uh, Hugh, fantastic for the Wallabies and the Waratahs to have him for three years. But again, these flexible contracts, which I guess gives us the ability to sign him for three years. Geez, it'll be interesting to see how they play out. Yeah, player management's going to become a much greater um, issue, I think, in terms of how much rest these guys get. and Because, uh, I mean, Nick Cummins has been a bit of a cautionary yeah. tale this year. But you think next year, from a Royalty perspective, poor old Daryl Gibson's been, you know, sold a bit of a lemon. He's got his two key players in Falau and, and Foley both having to deal, you know, come back and deal with um, that uh, potential player fatigue. So we'll see how that goes. Um, and the other one was more last week's noise news, but still significant, was the, the Reds pulling out of their negotiations with Quade Cooper. Uh, look, I'm hearing plenty of stories behind the scenes. Uh, unfortunately, they're telling the complete opposite. One, that Quade still wants to stay and wants to work it out with the CEO. Uh, others, that he uh, ha- is fed up with the organisation and wants to move on. So uh, who knows what to believe, but suffice to say there's, um, there seems to be a bit more to go on there. Um, the another fly half move is the CS Ebbotson from the Force has been released. I think he had another two years in his contract. Um, he's been released and and will join the Exodus overseas. Uh, but it comes on um, the back of more rumours that uh, Peter Grant might be signed by the Force. Um, and I know I think it was Brett McKay from um, the Raw dug up an old article from 2009 back then saying that the force had rumoured to sign Peter Grant. So, gosh, you know, six, seven years later, they've finally got their man. Well, they're going to oh, need someone you. over there because they've just let uh, Zach Holmes there back up 10 years. Yeah, exactly, well. yeah. So um, is John O'Lance going to run the show over there? I don't know. Yeah. Oh, God knows. I mean, number 10 at the force. For I mean, Peter Grant, for yeah, God's sake. So it's like let, almost uh, like for yeah. like there. It is, exactly. They've they've the let, leather off it. Let Emerson go for an older version of Emerson. Yeah, I know. That's the thing. What we need is... We, we've had too many fly halves that kick too much. What we need is another fly half that kicks a lot, you know? It's another, and preferably South African too. That, that yeah, would be exactly. We've got to keep the quota up. Um, mm. uh, look, big one for you, Hugh, is the, the Sydney Sevens uh, was announced today in terms of uh, the dates. So we're looking at February next year, correct? February 6th and 7th, a uh, uh, massive weekend in Sydney. Uh, Allianz at Paddington, the ticket prices as well were announced today and they're fantastic. They're great, yeah. Uh, yeah, $30 a day or $50 for a two-day pass for general admission and uh, probably 60 to 70% of the ground is going to be general admission. So you can just wander in and still get a really good seat on the GA and uh, all be behind the goalpost, which I think is going to be um, probably one end will be a party zone and one end will be a kind of family zone. So, um it's, uh, geez, I, I can't wait for this. I think it's going to be great. Oh, I think it'll be sensational. I'm toying with the idea of bringing my boys down to come and do it, um, which is more than I did for the Gold Coast, to be honest. But <laughs> um, uh, but that'll be very exciting. And you, you, you can bet the uh, you will get behind it and it'll be interesting to see who is playing because it's uh, Olympic Games uh, next year. So it's uh, a big season for sevens. Yeah, well, certainly look like Sonny Bill Williams might be there and uh, you'd think there might be one or two big name Aussies as well. Yep, exactly right. Um, look, get a bit of grassroots. The Australian Schoolboys Championships is on at the moment at St Ignatius College, I believe. Uh, in early days yet, you know, I think the the main teams, Queensland, New South Wales, the results are going as per expected, but uh, they'll start facing up against each other and against their respective second teams 
over the next few days, and that's when the uh, the the wheat uh, will certainly be. Um, you know, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but that's what that's what we'll see who the the champions will be this year. And, and New South Wales one and two winning it, uh, or facing off the final last year. Queensland hurt big time from that, so we'll see if they can bounce back. Um, also worth mentioning, it's got a bit of press. Is the uh, from a grassroots perspective, is the struggles of the Penrith club. They had a bit of a tough weekend last weekend versus Eastwood. I think across their four grades, the total score might have been 465 to, to zero. So um, we all know Western New South Wales uh, is uh, quite often neglected in terms of development, but they're not good signs out there, Hugh. Yeah, it's a complex problem out at Penrith. Um... They've got issues that, uh, I mean, they've got a massive player base out there of, of uh, potential players, um, certainly in terms of big islander communities as well that, that uh, love their rugby. But uh, issues go just beyond investment and, and go a bit deeper into the administration of that club and yep. the administration of rugby out there generally, which uh, is probably a bit behind where it needs to be. Um, but, yeah, there's there's no easy solution to that one, sadly. All right, uh, pretty much wraps us up. Steve, anything else from you? Oh, just on the Falau, uh, the club that he's going to is the Red Hurricanes, who are, I think are in Osaka, so that'll be interesting. And okay. also um, another jersey released this week or today even. Um, it was your blacks. Now, I hope you're all sitting down for this one. It was black. So oh, really? Easy brief there for the, the manufacturer. And obviously, <laughs> um, Apparently, Richie McCaw had some input there too, so um, I don't, I'm not sure what colour cloaks of invisibility come in. Uh, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> um, almost too black though, wasn't it? Uh, look, um, let's uh, we'll wrap it up there. A couple of things again. Thanks to our sponsors, uh, Queensland Rugby and the Reds Long Lunch, uh, which is fast approaching. So we talked about that July 18 Test match and how exciting it'll be to see um, some of those new faces there. Well, the long lunch is a couple of days before that um, up here in Brizzo and, and some great names there. It's just been announced this week that Michael Chica will be there as well as a special guest. So uh, oh, fantastic to... Um, sensational. We love we love Cheeks up here. So it'll be great to, to hear from him. Um, look, I also wanted to mention something that's been happening uh, somewhat behind the scenes. Not everyone from Green and Gold Rugby will be aware of it, but it's a bit on the forum, is the NRC is coming up and... Uh, Green and Gold Rugby are working on a concept uh, at the moment very similar to the Ranfurly Shield. Um, we recognise, we're big fans of the NRC, um, uh, what it produced last year and, and where it might continue to go. Uh, we also want to make sure it remains um, in touch with grassroots rugby. So the concept was uh, creating this trophy, like the Ranfurly Shield, which gets played on a challenge uh, system whereby there's a holder of the of the Shield, and, and it would be the Melbourne Rising, having finished last year as the uh, minor premiers. And whenever they play a home game, that Shield is up for the challenge. So we're uh, scoping out that trophy at the moment, early days, uh, looking at the design phase, and ultimately in the next full week or so, hopefully, uh, we will be calling on donations from the rugby community. We've got a lot of positive support already from the, the supporters of Green and Gold Rugby. Uh, we'll announce this on the blog because we're going to... It's very much a community-driven enterprise to this. We've, we've spoken to the RU, but we're going to take the lead. Um, very excited about what it might do and, and hopefully create a bit of tradition um, for what should be a, hopefully a long-term tournament. Um, good concept, guys. You, you'd be supportive of that. You love your grassroots rugby. Oh. Be fantastic. It'd be a really great tradition, and and add a bit of uh, add something else to the NRC that you know another point of interest uh, 
uh, from week to week and, and give supporters of uh, the team that holds the shield uh, a little bit extra um, motivation to come out and support their team. Exactly right. All right, guys. Look, thanks for the podcast. It was a, a bumper crop of a podcast tonight. Um, uh, let's enjoy a weekend off and just being uh, neutral observers to the grand final on Friday afternoon. Uh, Steve, thanks for your time, mate. That's all right. Thanks for having me. And to you too as well, Hugh. Cheers, Reg. I'll, I'll see you at the announcement tomorrow. Yeah, look forward to it, mate. And thanks to our listeners. We'll speak to you next week. Yeah, right there, right there.